We're going to have to turn around all those people who keep saying, but we've always done it that way. It's our young people that are going to have to do it. Welcome to The Ongoing Transformation, a podcast from Issues in Science and Technology. Issues is a quarterly journal published by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine and by Arizona State University. The White House declared 2023 the year of open science, marking a high-level endorsement of practices that were once fringe and even disparaged. Open science encompasses many practices, sharing data, making research papers free to read, also making reviews, methods, and science overall more transparent, more robust, and less biased. The Center for Open Science launched in 2013 to push for these goals, starting with making these practices easier, and then expected, and then maybe mandatory. My name is Manya Baker, Senior Editor at Issues. In this episode, I'm joined by Brian Nosick, the co-founder and executive editor of the Center for Open Science. Hey, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Ten years ago, you founded something called the Center for Open Science. What does it do? The Center for Open Science is a nonprofit that spun out of my lab at the University of Virginia that has a mission to increase openness, integrity, and reproducibility of research. And really what we are trying to do is address what we see as a core challenge in how science works, which is the reward system is about producing exciting, novel, positive findings, even at the expense of them being rigorously produced, accurately reported, and credible and useful. And so we want to tackle that reward system and shift it so that researchers are rewarded for pursuing what we all see as sort of core values of how we think and hope science will operate transparently, rigorously, openly, and pursuing knowledge at the boundaries to see what new things we can discover to help advance humanity. I just like to think back to what the world was like in 2013. Barack Obama was the US president, Frozen was the top grossing movie, and you are gonna go on sabbatical from your psychology professor job to found a unusual nonprofit. How did people react when you told them of your plans and hopes? The alarm response was, why would you do this? This is going to damage the field of psychology, my home discipline where we started, uh, and then science more generally, uh, because you will undermine uh, trust and perceptions of credibility of science by questioning whether our findings are credible and trying to figure out how we can do better. The other side of that reaction were people who said, Oh my God, it's about time. I've been talking about this issue forever and no one's ever done anything about it. So I'm glad you're doing it and sign me up. What did you want to accomplish more broadly for society? Ultimately, it's to improve science so that we can accelerate discovery of knowledge, of solutions, of treatments for all the things that we, the reason why we invest in science in first place. And so the core motivation is improving rigor and reproducibility. But in our broader network of advancing open science, there are other motivations that also play a part. So for example, taxpayers pay for the research, they should be able to access the research. And so the fact that the way the system operates is by closing access to different parts of the research process, the papers that are produced, the data and the materials and things underlying it, 
that's a problem for the democratization and dissemination of knowledge, those business models. Another part of it is just transparency so that one can evaluate and assess the credibility of the research literature. A lot of the practice of science that's related to the challenges that we tried to confront is that it's actually opaque. That when I get a finding and write up my results and submit it to a journal and get it published, what you can see as a consumer is my interpretation of my research. Here's what I think is important about my methodology. Here's what is important to share about my data. And here's what I think it all means. But really, that's advertising for the research. It's not the research itself. So for really effective transparency of being able to assess the credibility of findings, all of the stuff that went into doing the research, the code, the data, the materials also has to be available. So that sort of collective set of motivations is a big part of what open science is about. I'm just wondering if there's any instances that you recall and you thought, wow, the conversation has changed. People's assumptions about what science should be has changed. The Center for Open Science is just one of a variety of actors that have been working on these issues. But a direct personal experience was that the initial reaction, people that are sort of skeptical of this saying, you're going to ruin your career by doing this. The skeptics, not so long later, said, the only reason he's doing this is to advance his career. <laughs> ah, we're making it somewhere, right? We're making progress. If people think this is going to go terribly to, oh no, it's actually going really well, too well for him. So that was an interesting moment. Now that argument is mostly replaced by silence uh, from people who are un unhappy with the movement, as it were. A second instance that comes to mind is that early on in the open science movement, when I would visit graduate programs to give a, you know, a colloquium in a department at some university I was visiting, we'd have lunch with grad students and talk about whatever issues they were wanting to talk about. And the open science conversation was done in whispers. Like, I, I really like this, but I don't, I don't know if this is, you know, if I can do it here and I'm going to get in trouble for saying anything about it. And after three or four years of that, it totally transitioned to, uh, we're doing this in the grad student lunches again. We're excited about this. We're doing it. And how do I get my recalcitrant advisor involved? Because I'm having trouble with that. So it shifted from a, a notion of fear or challenge to a real empowerment, especially of early career researchers. What were the graduate students afraid to do? Yeah. So posting a preprint. Oh my God, my professor doesn't want me to post a preprint. They said that would be terrible. Preprint being sharing a paper before peer review has occurred. Sharing data. Oh my God. They, you know, my mentor says that the data is ours. We own it. Uh, we shouldn't be sharing it. Inviting people to criticize our work by being able to see our data. Or pre-registration, writing down in advance uh, what our plans are for this project. Why would we do that? Then we constrain ourselves to what we can claim afterwards about what the study was about. And so those required some socialization for what the value proposition is. And that socialization work is much harder for those that have been doing science for longer because it's not how business has been done as usual. But a lot of the open science behaviors are intuitive for people entering science. 
and thinking, what is science about? Well, it's about an open conversation, trying to find evidence, debating what the evidence means, figuring out how we might make use of this, how we might build on it, questioning different parts of it. So openness is so comes naturally. The way that the resistance is there now is because it gets beaten out of us based on the, the culture and reward system that's been so pervasive for so long. Yeah, I really want to get back to the socialization, but I also wanted to start off with the first thing that I remember the Center for Open Science doing that really gained um, a lot of attention. And it was a project that you'd brought over from the University of Virginia where you and others had amassed all of these so many teams of researchers to do a hundred replications of psychology studies that had been published in top journals. You assessed things in a million ways, and you found that half of these studies failed to replicate it. I wonder if you could talk about why you wanted to start this way. Conducting uh, replications was, for me, a critical part of initiating the reform because it approached the problem in the way scientists appreciate how one approaches problems, by gathering evidence. There have been lots of arguments since the 1950s and 60s, lots of strong, very clear theoretical arguments for why current practice of how science is done could lead to less than perfectly credible results. So for example, one key problem is the notion of publication bias, that you're much more likely to be able to publish a positive result, finding that a relationship exists or that this intervention is successful at addressing that particular outcome, than it is to publish a negative result. But that bias of only publishing the things that are positive results leads to a literature that is much more exaggerated by chance than reality. If you're leaving out half of the actual evidence or more, then you have a problem with the credibility of the literature. It's intuitive and easy to understand that that problem would emerge, but there hadn't been any systematic effort to connect that presumed implication to the actual implication. And you'd say, well, but people are doing replications all the time. It's science after all. So we would know just by the fact that people are always doing replications. But that also uh, wasn't occurring in 2012 or the decades prior very often because it's not rewarding to do replications or try to publish them because the value, the reward structure is about novelty. No, you got to find something new. You got to extend it in a new domain. Going back and repeating something just isn't worth it. Yeah. And um, just for completeness, I want to add something that you have said many times, which is for any particular replication that doesn't match the original results, it could be that there's something different about the replication. But when you're looking at a whole body of replication, then you can draw some conclusions. Yeah. So our goal with that project was let's get some evidence and let's set up the project in a way that we actually might be able to do it. Because it's in nobody's individual interest to do a bunch of replications. But if we do it in a crowdsourced way and we organize the project in such a way that we try to live these best practices of transparency and rigor so that those replications are as likely as possible to be meaningful evidence, then we might be able to get a set of evidence that people will take seriously. And it doesn't mean that it's all correct, but it will at least ground the conversation in something concrete. So I've heard a lot of your talks. When you talk about making change, you talk about moving from making a practice first possible, then making it easy, making it desirable, and then expected, and then required. And 
I was wondering if you could maybe pick some illustrative example and tell me how that shift has been playing out in practice. Sure. Yeah, happy to do that. Uh, so maybe pre-registration is the great one because it's the most dramatic change to the everyday workflow for researchers, but has perhaps the biggest impact of open science new behaviors on improving rigor and reproducibility. So as mentioned before, the pre-registration is the act of writing down the study that you're going to do, the questions that you're going to investigate in that study, and how you will analyze the data. One is publication bias. If all of these studies that I do from my lab are documented in a registry, then even if I only put three of the 100 experiments I ran that semester in a paper, the other 97 are still discoverable. So we can address that fact that some things are more likely to get published than other things by putting it all into a registry and making sure that it's documented even before it's conducted. The second thing that it solves is making a clear distinction between what was planned in advance and what was discovered after the fact. We operate an open source free infrastructure for researchers called the Open Science Framework. And it has workflows for pre-registering your research and then attaching your data. And then once we have this infrastructure, we start to engage communities to say, this is something that you can do. Here is the value proposition for it. Here's why you might be interested in it. And that can be done with writing scholarly papers or giving talks or offering training, but also by making visible that others in their community are doing it. So if we can establish a beachhead of here are some idealists from your community that are trying out pre-registration and look, they're doing it. And look, the findings are really interesting or highly credible. Or when you look at it, you might be impressed by the rigor of this. That shift in norms and socialization process can spread very easily if it's clear why that behavior might be of value. And for many of these areas of research, it's not really that hard to make the case for why these behaviors could have value. And so we have been working on a variety of solutions to actually build it into the reward system. And my favorite one is called registered reports, where the researcher submits to the journal because publication is the currency of advancement. So to get my publication, instead of sending you all my results that have now gone through my filter of trying to make them publishable, I send you my pre-registration plan. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to do it. Here's why I'm going to do it. And the journal reviews that and makes a decision based on peer reviews, whether the research question is interesting and whether the methodology is an effective test of that question. And before anyone knows the results, the journal makes a commitment to publishing it or not. That change fundamentally alters the reward system for me as the author. In the standard model, I'm rewarded for producing exciting results. With registered reports, I'm rewarded for asking important questions and designing really rigorous methods to test them. And I get my reward based on that, and then I do my research, and then the journal makes sure that I did what I said I was going to do, and then publishes it, regardless of outcome. So we can build pre-registration directly into the reward system and improve the rigor of the research while simultaneously helping the researcher advance their own careers. And then the capstone for all of that is shaping the policies that govern who gets hired, how they keep their job, who gets funding, and who gets to publish. And so we work a lot with the funders and publishers and institutional agents 
to try to shape their policies toward embracing things like pre-registration and the other open science behaviors. If you have a sense of what this desirable behavior is, wouldn't it be simpler to just try to start with a policy change, you know, go to the funders? When do you want to go to a policy change and why do you want to do all the work to change the reward structure? Yeah, you could run right to policy and just make things happen. The challenge that emerges by starting with policy or doing policy in isolation and not working on making it possible, making it easy, building those communities and norms, working on the reward system, is if those things aren't in place, then the policy may be right in principle, but not work in practice because the community isn't with you. Imagine that we just got pre-registration. NIH just said, everybody has to pre-register everything, no matter what we fund. Then many researchers may say, oh, great. It's another form I have to fill out from NIH. That's just a waste of my time. There hasn't been the building of a sense of good practice. It's not really directly related to also how they get their jobs, keep their jobs, advance their careers. It's not really integrated into the workflow of the publishing, nor in their daily workflow of using like the open science framework for their work. And so it's just this extra thing that they have to do. And so going policy alone can convert great ideas into bad implementations that then don't meet their promise. So those other parts, none of them are sufficient, but they're all necessary to help with effective culture change that's not just scaled and sustained, but also embraced. And that's the key added element. Right. So you don't get something performative rather than sincere. I want to uh, go back in time to 2015 when the Center for Open Science and, and others rolled out the transparency and openness promotion guidelines. I was a reporter at Nature at the time, and I remember when this was coming out, and I had pitched it as a news story to my editor, but it didn't fly. I didn't get the assignment because the idea was, oh, well, there's no requirements. There are no teeth in these guidelines. All it's doing is asking journals to say whether or not they have any explicit statement on things like data citation or data sharing or encourage replication studies. So there's no teeth to this. So why do we care? And, you know, fast forward to 2023 you hear a lot of conversation that is grounded in how people are fulfilling these guidelines. And they're used to sort of mark what journals are doing. I guess I wanted to ask you, how does this example fit in with soft persuasion versus strict policy? Yeah, it is another example of using the exact same change matrix theory of trying to make things possible, easy, normative, rewarding, and required. But the target is not the researcher, it's the journal. And we have the exact same concept that journals themselves or editors are in a dysfunctional reward system that encourages them to do certain behaviors to operate their journal to succeed in that reward system. And so we have to be sensitive to what it is that drives journal editors to make decisions about how to run their journal. And a lot of that is rooted in the reputation of the journal which is based, unfortunately, on something that no one endorses, but everyone uses, which is the journal impact factor. How many times the papers in the last couple of years from that journal have been cited by other papers? It's widely recognized as an imperfect or even opposite of imperfect. The reputational stakes for editors adopting new policies is high. They, they take on risks. And so we introduce the transparency and openness promotion guidelines first with a soft sell. 
let's just see if people endorse these principles. And the principles of open science are easy to endorse by researchers. There are very few researchers that say, no, we should be closed and we should hide everything. We shouldn't try to be rigorous. And that's just not a thing you argue. So endorsement was a low barrier to entry to get the publishers on board with saying, we think that these are good principles. Then, of course, we're not done there. Each year or so, we up the ante a little bit more by starting to de-emphasize endorsement. Okay, everybody's endorsed. Everybody sees each other, thinks this is a good idea. Now we want to see what you've done. And so we're going to start evaluating your policies to see if you've adopted anything related to the guidelines. And then we put those on a website. And then we even start to create a scoreboard is a little bit too strong of a term, but a way to search and discover what policies each of the journals that people might read, what their policies are for this. With the ideal of saying, your values you've stated, your actions falling short so far, how is it that we can bring your actions in line with your stated values and provide that information about what others that are progressive actors among editors are doing so that they don't feel those risks of adoption uh, that they might have felt early. So it is the exact same culture change intervention as trying to engage the researchers by showing that it's possible, giving easy pathways to do it, providing communities that lower the risk, and then ultimately trying to engage, as you mentioned, the year of open science, a federal engagement on saying, we're just going to start doing this stuff. This is, this is coming. It's going to be required for everybody. A lot of times we've been mainly talking about the scientific community as if it's one community, but it's many. And one way that it breaks apart is along disciplinary lines and different disciplines have different attitudes and practices to things like data citation and data sharing and other open practices. How do you advocate for change or know what change you want to advocate for given the differences in the community? Yeah, so our overall approach is to advance standards as much as possible and customization as much as necessary. Because the real bear that we have with science is what you just said, is that it's entirely decentralized, both in governance, lots of different actors driving scientific practices, and in its norms and community activities. There are different disciplines, there are different methodologies. A lot of the principles of open science do have general application And so the standard part is how is it that we can address some of the coordination problem by using language, by developing solutions, by finding points of leverage that make connections across these distinct disciplinary communities. And if we can do that by translating what is local language for the same concepts to each other, then we can sort of provide, oh, I, I understand that open data, while Data for me in my work as a physicist is different than data for them in their work as an economist. We both have a shared recognition that we have data and what making the data open would mean. The customization part is recognition that there is not going to be universal solutions. There are a variety of methodologies, and some of those methodologies are more amenable to some behaviors than others. And so we have to be prepared to try to ensure that the solutions are fit for purpose and then continuously evaluate whether or not they're meeting their aims. Because the last thing we want to do is identify reforms that are great in theory. Oh, we have such good intentions for accelerating science, but then the solution is actually inhibiting (laughs) progress in science. 
as an organization, we don't care about the solutions per se. We care about the outcome. And so that's where we try to keep our eye. Is there a lesson to be drawn from a particular customization that you found to be necessary or maybe not necessary? Yeah, I think what is surprising in most cases is how much there are shared principles and even practices at the level of analysis that we try to intervene of this notion of pre-registration of writing down your plans. If you stay a little bit above the very specific methodological details of executing this kind of experiment and instead are about the description of what the overall procedure is, how it is you will ask a question and then try to extract some insight from that. I have been surprised by how much we can get to pretty general solutions that apply across domains, across quantitative and qualitative research, across physical life social science research, that the real challenge is that everybody thinks parochially and is pretty sure that the problems that they face in their field are totally unique to their field. And once you sort of work through what the problems actually are, it's often what seems different in depth is really a superficial difference in how the problem is talked about. So open science. Open science is not just one thing either. Some people talk about making papers free to read. Some people talk about making data accessible or making the data more transparent or encouraging replications. So how do you keep all of these very different kinds of practices, these different change goals from conflicting with or just distracting from each other? Yeah, this is a real interesting challenge. And it's a, for our perspective, the challenge is mostly about how do we keep the advocacy community aligned. A lot of people that are the agents of change, right? Putting their careers and efforts into trying to improve science from advancing openness in, in the broad sense of open science, come to it with different motivations. Some come to it really about democratizing access to knowledge. Others come to it with this sort of ethos of everything should just be open and free, open source community perspectives. Others come to it from this rigor and reproducibility. Others are like, I'm really all about participatory research. I can't believe that citizens aren't involved in research along the way. Those are very different motivations and may have different subsets of the open science constellation of behaviors that are more or less relevant uh, to those motivations. For us, it's again like this standards idea is, can we identify solutions that meet some or all of those motivations simultaneously. And if we can, then we can align those different advocacy communities toward the same goal, even though for them, the motivation comes from different sources. So a good example is open data. Open data serves the democratization of access goal. It serves the open source transparency goal for reuse and remixing for different things. It serves a participatory goal because now anybody can access that data and reanalyze it, look at it in different ways, check things that are more relevant to them. And it serves the rigor and reproducibility goal because it allows researchers to check each other's work and identify errors and challenges. So those are the best solutions. Like, let's start there <laughs> where we get everybody aligned on the, how the same behavior serves multiple different motivations. And then as we get that community having some trust and support in each other, those places where their motivations might lead to solutions that are kind of in conflict, we might be able to have them work collaboratively 
to try to realign them so that they can meet those disparate aims, but simultaneously advance the motivations that are underlying them. I want to sort of think about the next 10 years, because this is the year of open science in the US. There's been similar kinds of things elsewhere in the world. What's some no-brainer improvement that you would like to see going forward, and what would make it possible? There's been a great amount of change, uh, and simultaneously, there's a long way to go. The most important thing, I think, that needs to show clear evidence of change and starting to scale is research assessment by institutions for those key rewards of who gets a job and who keeps their job. The journals have been changing their practices and policies and approaches. The funders are making a lot of progress on changing their expectations for getting grants. But the institutions is the hardest problem because there's many of them their policies and approaches are ad hoc. They serve many, many different research communities under the same umbrella institution. And these particular behaviors, who gets a job and who keeps a job, in many institutions, those decisions are made in ad hoc contexts. So we form a committee for this particular tenure track professor position. And that ad hoc committee has whatever process it has and then disappears, and then some new ad hoc committee forms for the next hire some other time. So it's really hard in that context to disseminate change to get research assessment. What do we value in this researcher? What makes them a good researcher? What makes them someone we want in our department? It's really hard to get that change going. There are some exciting efforts that are starting. One in the US is called Helios. And the goal of that group is really to get universities in the US talking about this at the highest levels of leadership. Another that's a very exciting effort is called COARA, C-O-A-R-A. Institutions sign on to COARA. They make a commitment. We are going to reassess our research assessment processes. And we recognize that there are better principles than what we've been using for research assessment. And we will come up with a plan in five years for how we're going to do research assessment better. There's this stock reporter question, which says, you are now head of the National Institutes of Health, or you are now head of the National Science Foundation. What do you do to, you know, make research more reliable and open? And it sounds like you would need to be I don't even know who you would need to be. 10,000 university presidents, 20,000 department chairs. Well, I feel lucky that I get to be me. I've, I've got the job that I want to have. And I've been gifted with the exact opportunity to work on this problem of addressing the coordination problem of instigating behavior change that can start and scale and be sustained. And yeah, I'm outside a lot of those systems, but everybody's outside of a lot of the systems in science. It's decentralized. So really, from my perspective, all we need is to develop good solutions, evaluate the effectiveness of those solutions, and convince people with resources that this is working and a worthwhile investment. If we can get there, we're going to get this done. And I wake up enjoying every day that I get to work on it. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Check out our show notes for more of Brian's work referenced in this conversation and for the transcript. You can subscribe to The Ongoing Transformation wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our podcast producers, Kimberly Quatch and Sydney O'Shaughnessy, and our audio engineer, Shannon Lynch. I'm Anya Baker, Senior Editor here at Issues in Science and Technology. Thank you for joining us and see you next time.